0: All right. Well, good morning, Vine family. If uh, you want to grab a seat, uh, it's fun to hear the buzz of conversation. always encourage you to just continue these conversations after the service is over. Um, If you are newer to the Vine, uh, my name is Michael. I'm on staff here as a, a church planter in training and will be sent out in the near future to start a church on the east side of Madison out of the Vine. Just continue our mission to make disciples and plant churches amongst neighbors and nations. And so, Uh, It's a joy this morning to be with you. Um, I'm sure you guys all know, but today is a very uh, special day, celebrating 151 years of Canada being an awesome country, (laughs) right? Uh, So if you don't know me, I am from Canada. Today is Canada Day. Um, It's sweet. But I'm even more excited to be with you, worshiping our God who is bigger than any one nation. And our God loves us enough to speak, to reveal himself to us. And that's what I love about the Bible is God just shows himself to us and invites us to see him and get to know him, love him and live for him. And so this morning we're going to continue in uh, our series in the book of Exodus. And if you remember, the story of Exodus is God's people were in slavery in Egypt and God, out of his love and grace for them, rescued them out of Egypt through sacrifice on their behalf. And brought them through the Red Sea and, and brought them into the wilderness on the way to a promised land that he was bringing them. And along the way, he, he stops in the wilderness and says, Now that I've saved you by grace, I've got to teach you what it means to live as my children. To reflect my heart. And so we spent ten weeks just slowing down and looking at the Ten Commandments. Kind of the heartbeat of God's law. And even last week talked about how do we understand the Old Testament law today today as believers in Jesus. And this morning, we kind of pick up, so to speak, the the, the narrative a little bit again. And really, this morning's passage is really God reminding his people of who he is as a promise-keeping God. And these are really uh, just him reflecting back on these promises he made to their ancestor Abraham. And so I actually am going to read just very briefly a couple of the promises God made to Abraham so we can have them in our minds. So as we read the passage this morning, we'll hear the echoes of these promises being fulfilled. So if you have a Bible, look at Genesis 12 with me. It's also going to be on the screen. But in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham at that time called Abram. And he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And a couple pages over in chapter 15, we read this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So God made this promise to one man, Abraham, and said, Go, walk in obedience to me. I've called you. I've chosen you. And you're going to have many descendants. And we saw that in Exodus, his family's multiplied. And he said, they're going to be in slavery for a while, but I'm going to rescue them. And we saw that so far in the story. And he says, and I'm going to give them a land to call home. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see God revealing himself as this God who is with his people, who goes before them, who is good and can be trusted to fulfill his promises. And that's going to invite his people, to respond rightly then to him. And I think what's really going to be helpful this morning as we, as we look at who God is, we kind of tune in with Israelites to see God, I hope that it corrects kind of two wrong views we often have of God. One is that God is far off and distant and harsh and judgmental. And the other is that God is kind of warm and fuzzy and next to us and kind of just winks at disobedience as if it, that's a, no big deal, it's cool. And this morning, our pastors is going to say, no, we have a faithful and just God, but he's so good. He's a promise keeper. He's with us. And so let's, let's just go to prayer and ask God to help us see him rightly. Father, thank you so much that you do show yourself to us in the pages of this book. That you have not hidden yourself from us, but in love you show us who you are. You invite us to see you. And so, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see. Give me the right words to put you and you only on display, so that in seeing you, we will be changed and live for you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let me read our passage this morning. It's Exodus 23. It won't be on the screen initially, so just listen as I read, but we will have the verses up later starting in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days." I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land." And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Well, maybe as you heard that, maybe right away your mind is going, man, there's a lot of details here that seem really unique to this people about 3,000 years ago. We're we're not that people that long ago. And so it is important for us to slow down and ask, well, what does this mean for them? What, What was God's intention for them then before we think through how it applies to us today? I think what's so helpful is when you hit a passage like this where initially you're like, I don't know what to do with this, maybe, right? To slow down and pay attention and say, what's being repeated here? What's, what's the structure of this passage? How is it put together so that I can see the emphases of the text? And maybe you heard it as you were listening, but there's this repetition that shows up again and again of this sending in verse 20, behold, I send an angel before you. Verse 23, when my angel goes before you. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you. There's this repetition of God sending something before the people. He's going ahead of them, and, and that starts kind of a cycle each time of I'm promising to go before you. Here's what it looks like to follow in obedience, and then here's the blessings promised. There's the three cycles. And what I love about that is that just like how God saved his people and then called them to obey, the cycle doesn't begin with our obedience. The cycle begins with what God is promising to do for his people. Here's what I promise to do for you. I will go before. And so in verse 20 and 23, which are up on the screen, you can see this this promise of sending an angel angel before them to, to guard the way and to bring them to the place that God has prepared. He's saying, on this journey here, you're not alone. You're not wandering aimlessly. I'm sending my angel before you to lead the way, to guard you, to keep you safe, to clear the path, so to speak. And it made me think of uh, the movie Princess Bride. I re- really enjoy that movie. And there's a scene where one of the characters, Inigo Montoya, is trying to fight his way against a crowd because he's got to go stop the evil Prince Humperdinck. And he is, his friend is Fezik. Played by Andre the Giant. So big dude, right? And so he's, he's trying to battle through the crowd. And, he, and he's not making any headway. And he looks at Fezzik and goes, A little help here? And Fezzik goes, Everybody move! And like the, the crowd just parts, right? And it's like a clear path. And God's almost saying, "Like I'm sending my angel just clear the way. I'm going to clear the way. And you're just going to come right behind. I'm going before you. In fact... They've already actually experienced this. Back in Exodus 14, when they've just left Egypt, their their backs are up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies comes charging up, and they're like, oh man, we are all going to die. And they start like panicking and freaking out. And we read this in Exodus 14. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. He was already there, leading the way. And then when it was required, he came around and was their rear guard, protecting them, buying them the time to cross through the Red Sea that God opened. They've already experienced the angels leading and protecting In fact, the angel shows up one other time, too. Back in chapter 3, when Moses is first called to begin this whole rescue mission, it's the angel of God, we're told, that is the flame in the bush. So you can almost see God reminding his people, hey guys, remember, I sent my angel at the start to kickstart this whole rescue mission. He was there at the crisis point for you, and I'm going to continue sending him with you. From beginning to the end of this journey, you are not alone I send my angel before you. He's with you. You're not alone. And so this really begs the question, right? Who is this angel? Because we can read in scripture about angels, these spiritual beings that are servants of God and do his work and carry messages and protect. But all of those angels, when you run into them, when people run into them and they're tempted to bow down at their, their beauty and power, they're always like, no, 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 don't do that. I'm not God. You can't worship me. Don't obey me. I'm just a creature. But look at what is said of this angel in verses 21 and 22. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I, that is God say, wait a minute. So are they supposed to obey the voice of the angel or obey the voice of God? Yes. It's both. To obey the angel of God is to obey God. God's name, we're told, is in him. This is not a normal angel. A normal angel would not be obeyed this way. A normal angel doesn't have God's name on him. No, it seems like wherever this angel is, it's said that God is there. And obeying this angel is to obey God. So this is some type of appearing of God to his people in a way they can grasp. makes me think of uh, the movie Ready Player One by Spielberg, where in this kind of dystopian future, life is terrible, but you can kind of tune in to like this virtual world. In that virtual world, you have a a 3D representation of yourself, an avatar. And as you interact with other people, you're, you're interacting with them, but it's through this avatar In the same kind of way, it's almost like we're in one world, we're on one level, and God is on a totally other plane, and yet he chooses to interact with his people here on their plane, so to speak, with an avatar, with a representation of himself, this angel. But what that means, friends, is when God tells his people, I send my angel, he's really saying, I'm sending myself. I'm with you. I, the God who made all things, am before you. Think about how comforting this would have been for God's people. All they've known is slavery. They're now in the wilderness. There's a promise of getting to a beautiful land, but right now they're in the wilderness. They face dangers. They're still facing dangers. They're going to face dangers. And in the midst of this wilderness experience, God says, don't worry. I'm going before you. I'm with you. You're not wandering aimlessly in the deserts. I'm near to you. In fact, in verse 27, he says again, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. My name, my fame will go before you. So when you show up and finally run into enemies in the land, they'll already be running for cover. Just like when Fezzik's voice breaks out over the crowd, they part. Already when you get there, I'm ahead of you. Providing, protecting. You don't need to worry. And what's beautiful is this leading. He's even so gentle to go at a pace they can handle. As in verses 29 to 31, when he talks about bringing them into this land, he says, I'll not drive the people out from before you in one year, because then the land will become desolate. There's not enough of you to, to increase and possess the land, and wild beasts will overtake you. So I'm going to lead you. I'm going to give you that promised land, but I'm going to do it at a pace that blesses you, that serves you. Do you see how gentle and kind God is with his people here? And he says, I'm going to go before you here. And when I go before you, that eventually leads to blessing. Notice some of the blessings he highlights here in verses 25 and 26. He says, I'll bless your bread and your water, things that are in short supply in the wilderness, right? And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Wouldn't you want to live in a place like that? No sickness, no fear of lack of provision, no miscarriage. I know some of you probably in this room have gone through miscarriage, and you know the pain of that. My wife and I have gone through that. It's hard. And he says, but this is what the blessed life looks like with me. None of that. It's what he's offering you as people. And verse 22, he says, not only that, but I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So I'm going to take your side. And this is Genesis 12, right? I will bless you, and I will also Oppose and curse those who curse you. See this God who is with his people, goes before them, protects them, guides them all the way. He's not far off, is he? But maybe this raises the question though okay, that's great for his people, but what about the other peoples? I mean, what about verse 23? When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. Or verse 28, I will send hornets which will drive them out from before you. What's up? Why do they get this harsh treatment? That's the question that pops in your mind, doesn't it, when you read those verses? It should. Is God, as Richard Dawkins would say, a moral monster, not worth following? We have to face that question. But I think scripture helps us answer that. We actually can go back to the promise in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we, we read, remember, that verse 13, that the people of Israel would be sojourners in a land not their own, and they would be afflicted for 400 years. And then verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I think there's a couple of things you need to notice there. One is that the Amorites, standing in for all the people, are not innocents. So often we think, why are these innocent people being judged? They're not innocent. No innocent people get judged by God. They have iniquity. They have rebellion. They're guilty. And God is a good, just judge will judge. And sometimes we think, well, I don't don't know if I want God to judge. I'd rather have God that doesn't judge. But just pause for a minute and think about what that means. Imagine a world in which there is no justice, for there's no judgment. Imagine a world in which there's no justice for murder. There's no justice for abuse. There's no justice for racism. There's no justice for sexual assault because... God doesn't care. It's not a big deal. I don't judge those things. Do we actually want to live in that world? I don't think so. We want a world of justice. We sometimes just don't like the fact that that means we too might face that justice. But not only does God not judge innocent people, only guilty ones, but we noticed he waits 400 years. He's like, they're guilty but I'm going to wait 400 years to bring the hammer, to bring the gavel down. This is how God is across scripture. He's slow to anger. He's slow to judge. His desires, instead of judging, people would turn and run to him for rescue. And so he waits. He's slow. He's so patient. Are we even one, one hundredth as patient as God? I mean, think about the last time that you were wronged. Isn't the instinct like, justice now, right now, right? When we get wronged. And then God's like, I'm going to wait 400 years. I'm going to be patient. And so if God who only judges the guilty and who waits and waits and waits when we don't tend to wait and we don't always judge rightly, If that God is a moral monster, then how should we describe ourselves who are way worse? That's not a moral monster. I also think it's helpful to see that this is not ethnic cleansing. Sometimes you can read this and think he hates those peoples, but that's not the case. Verse 32 and 33 of our chapter tells us why he brings the judgment. He says this, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods, They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This isn't an ethnic thing. It's a worship thing. It's a rebellion thing. God's saying these people are judged because they have run after other gods. They have rebelled against me. And so they will face judgment. And I have to because God is like the doctor who's willing to cut off the leg full of gangrene to save the body. Or the coach who's willing to ask to have a player traded away because they're poisoning the locker room. That's what he says to his people. And actually, historically, the people of Israel were ensnared. They were trapped because they didn't listen. And so God says, I want to be a loving God who judges and cuts off evil so it doesn't spread. He actually loves all nations. Back in Genesis 12, remember that promise? You will be a blessing, Abraham, not to the Jews only, to all nations. And when Israel left Exodus, they left with other ethnic peoples with them. And when they actually get to the land and hit their first obstacle, the city of Jericho, there's a woman there, the Bible tells us, who is a prostitute named Rahab, who said, I've heard about your God. I trust him. And even though she's one of these people, she's not judged. Her and her whole household are saved. Why? Because she ran and found refuge in God instead of rebelling. This is not an ethnic thing. It's a worship disobedience thing. And so God is not judgmental and harsh in the way we often think. But he will judge because he's good, because he's loving. And so in light of these promised blessings and the warnings, he calls his people to obey. So in verse 24, 25, he says, don't bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do. You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars of their worship places in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. He's saying, there's a choice. Choose now. Who are you gonna worship, Israel? I'm going before you. I promise blessing. I've rescued you. Serve me. Or you can serve the other gods and end up in destruction and chaos and judgment. Who will you worship? Who will you serve? Who will have your heart? That's the call to follow. So what does this mean for us today then? We're not a nation of Israel, as followers of God now. We're not promised a physical land now. But there's a pattern of how God works in the Old Testament that he works in so we can see a foreshadowing of how he works in Jesus. There's a character of God that is consistent that we get to see. So as we stop and say, well, what did it mean for them? We go, well, they were meant to see that God promised to go with them and then to respond in trust and obedience. So what's our response? It's the same. It's to see, wow, when we read this passage, we remember that God is a promise-keeping God, and he has promised to be with his people and to go with them. Except now, it's not the angel. No, there's clarity now. It's the one who bears his name, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God saves. He's the one that bears God's name. God the Son has come. He came to be with us, to go before us. And he promised when he left to return to heaven, his disciples, I'm with you until the end of the age. And he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell believers to guide us and to watch us and to lead us along the way. And we're promised that he's gonna bring us to the promised land. But it's not just one little piece of land anymore, no. Because that land could never fulfill these promises. But there's a land coming, the new heaven and new earth, when the whole world is made new again. And that day there will be no more sickness, no more crying, no more sorrow, and no more death as God makes everything new. And until we get there while we're on the journey, Jesus says, don't worry, I'll protect you. Not even the gates of hell can stop me from protecting my people. That's his promises. Doesn't your heart need those promises today? Yeah. Doesn't, Doesn't your heart have those days where you're like, I feel the wilderness experience. I feel it. I feel like I'm an orphan, abandoned and alone, and there's dangers all around and we read Exodus 23, and we see that God is the faithful God who says, no, you're not alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. I go before you, and so follow me. And friends, we will never be able to follow him well, we'll never be able to obey him well, unless we see his heart for us. It's really hard to obey. It's really hard to trust someone that you don't know if they're good or not. No, we need to see God as trustworthy and good and so we respond by walking in obedience and because we're not a nation with one land we don't kick people out of our land no instead we actually invite people to find refuge in Jesus we say when the final promised land comes there will be judgment on that day but today today if you hear his voice run to him for refuge Jesus is a great savior Run to him. We invite people into that gospel hope, that good news of Jesus. But like Israel, we're also called to be careful. Don't become ensnared. Don't be like them. You can't stand out from the culture and and bring people to see the goodness of Jesus if you're just like them. Be careful. Don't be ensnared. I was chatting with a friend from the Vine just this week, and he was saying, you know, I found that one of the best evidences of the realness of Jesus and Christianity is the changed lives of Christians. And I thought, that's right. That is right. But how can people see that if we're not any different? So maybe if you're struggling to see any difference in your life, if you're struggling to obey, it might not be that you need to try harder, friends. It might be that you've lost sight of God's heart for you. It might be that you've forgotten that you're not an orphan. God's with you, and He's good, and you can trust Him. And if you saw that, maybe it'd be a little easier to follow. I know that's a little bit of my story. Growing up in the church, never had a hard time believing there was a God for me, but He was out to strike me with lightning if I stepped out of line. And so I was a good good kid because, man, I don't want to get struck by lightning. I'm smart enough to add up the pros and cons. I don't want that. But there wasn't any joy. It wasn't until I started to hit kind of rock bottom and came this close to committing suicide and God rescued me and said, Michael, I'm for you. I love you because of Jesus. It was then that there was joy and obedience. It was then that there was an eagerness to trust and follow. And so maybe that's what you need to do this morning for application, is not try harder, but say, God, show me yourself as this faithful, promise-keeping God who's with us and goes before us, and give me a heart that wants to follow. Because here's the crazy thing. Verse 21. We have to pay careful attention to this angel, to God, to Jesus. And don't rebel, for he will not pardon your transgression that's a weighty verse god as we said can't actually clear the guilty and so something amazing happened jesus did go before us he went before us into judgment and said i'll take the punishment so you get the pardon i'll take the guilt that's a god we can trust Hebrews 12, I think, it really summarizes this really well. Verses 1 and 2, it says this. Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Don't get ensnared. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's follow him looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has gone before us and is with us. Let's look to him. So if you're struggling to see God as good, look at Jesus hanging on a cross for you. And you follow for your good, but also for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are not orphans if we've trusted in Jesus, but that you've loved us and adopted us. That actually, almost echoing the words of of Exodus, remember, I've sent Jesus before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I'm preparing. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Don't rebel. Lean in, because he will pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him, and now, by faith, my name is in you. God, thanks so much that we have the right, the privilege to be called children of God, if we trust in Jesus. So I pray that all of us would run to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to see him as a God who's with us and for us, and follow. Pray this in your name. Amen.